Go ahead and grab your Bible, and you can open up to Romans chapter 13. And and, uh, as you're kind of turning there, first of all, let me just say how good it is for all of us to be together in this room, isn't it? What a joy. Yeah, praise the Lord. Really thankful for how God has um, been working in our midst. And I'm going to chalk all of this up to God's providence that uh, the Sunday that we are speaking of the Christian's relationship to government falls on the Sunday we are celebrating the lifting of government restrictions. I'm not smart enough to plan it that way. Um, Believe me, uh, God's kindness and God's sovereignty has arranged this. Government has uh, become a hot topic in our day and age, hasn't it? Um, For some of us, um, many of us perhaps, we haven't thought much about government prior to these last two years at all. It's kind of been there in the background, in the periphery of our lives, but we've really never paid much attention to it. We've never thought too much about it. But over the last couple of years, some of us who've never cared at all about politics have been thrown into the deep end of politics. Some of us who rarely ever talked about the government, that's all we can seem to do these days is talk about government. And to be fair, we are in the midst of a a really significant cultural moment. And so it's not unusual for the things that are going on around us to become major, major talking points in our lives, major things for us to consider and process, and it's right to do so. And many of of you have been waiting a long time to get to this passage. You've been like, who cares about the rest of Romans? Let's get to Romans 13. This is a hugely important text. It's crucial. But it is a hugely controversial text. And so even in saying that, I understand that today I am going to offend many of you, perhaps the large majority of you, And the reason I'm going to offend you is because I'm not going to be able to say everything you want me to say about government and politics. Paul's not going to say everything you want him to say about government and politics. I like what one commentator has said in regards to Romans 13. He says this, the reason this is such a controversial text, he says, is that the discussion mostly is on the question of how his, meaning Paul's teaching, should be applied under corrupt, malevolent, or totalitarian regimes. He goes on to say, while such discussions are important, it can easily obscure behind a heap of qualifications the essential point that Paul is making, which will apply in most circumstances. Do you hear what he's saying? We can get so clouded by what we want Paul to say, by what's going on all all around us, and, and even, listen, this sermon has the potential to die the death of a thousand qualifications. And there is a sense in which we are obligated to simply step back and let the text speak for itself. I do want to make a few qualifications as we go through, and I'm going to begin right now by saying this. This text is not a full-fledged theology of politics or government, and so it shouldn't be treated like that. But I think the reason that we struggle so much with this text is, like I said earlier, Paul doesn't say what so many of us want him to say. Paul doesn't go down the roads that so many of us want him to go down. We're itching for Paul to say something that he simply doesn't say. And there have been some throughout the history of the church and even throughout recent years who have twisted this text to try and make it say simply what they want it to say, not what it actually says. And so in an effort to not be guilty of that, I simply this morning want to say what the text says. And I think it's important that we simply begin by reading it and hearing what Paul says. So let's do that, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let's read through verse 7. Paul says this, "'Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment.'" For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you, have no, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. I think it's fair to say we've probably already been offended by this passage. (laughs) But listen, to understand this text, we need to keep it in its context. And I mean that in, in at least two ways. We need to keep it in its immediate biblical context, and we actually need to place it in its proper historical context. So I want to do that before we dive in and uh, unpack this a little bit. But, but keep in mind the flow of thought that Paul has begun all the way in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember, there's a turning point from the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12. He begins chapter 12, verse 1, by appealing to us on the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. In other words, he has given us 11 chapters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has exposited the wonderful beauties of God's grace, of justification by faith, of how we can possess the very righteousness of God, and he's given all that to us. We've we've called that deep thinking, okay? He's given us this understanding of theology and the gospel, and we've been called to think rightly, but now he shifts in chapter 12, and he calls us to begin deep living. In light of all of that gospel truth, in light of all the beauty and majesty and the transformation that God has wrought in you by the power of the gospel, that should now be evidenced in how you live the gospel out. And we saw that He appeals on the basis of the gospel. He calls us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are becoming new people. We are a part of the new creation in Christ Jesus. And He begins in chapter 12 to define what that looks like. And we spend a lot of time in chapter 12, but look at verse 9 for a minute. It's important to get the flow of thought here. He's given us really the marks of a true Christian, and the overarching umbrella, the theme that he has been driving is this in verse 9, let love be genuine. This is the dominating mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see, as we've unpacked the rest as we finished a couple weeks ago of of chapter 12, we've looked at this in relation to love, how the Christian begins to relate to himself, as the Christian begins to relate to the community of faith, as the Christian begins to relate to outsiders or even enemies, and now what we see is the Christian relating to the government. But I want you to see this. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. Following our text, listen to what he says in verse 8. Owe no one anything, notice this, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Here's what I want you to see. He sandwiches this idea of the the believer's relationship to the government between this theme of love. You say, so so what? Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, here's exactly what it means. It means that that Paul views submission to authority, at least in some way, as an expression and manifestation of the love of a believer, of genuine love that has transformed the believer. Love towards God, love love toward the family of God, love toward the world. He's connecting this idea of love to how we relate to the government, how we respond to authority. And I've entitled this message, Love That Submits, because it's a dominating idea here when it comes to Paul's view of authority. So that's the immediate flow of thought, the immediate biblical context, but I I think there is some important historical context that many of us, we don't consider when we read this passage. We, We just think that Paul must have lived in a wonderful society just like ours. He voted, right, the prime minister into office. He was the one who selected his MPs. I mean, he was responsible for all of this, and now he was just simply living in this utopian society where everything was running exactly the way it was supposed to. 
I want you to recall that the Jews in the Scriptures had many questions. If you read through the Gospels, you see this, many questions regarding the rights of the Roman government. They were wrestling with the responsibility they had to God and the responsibility they had to the governing authorities over them. The Jews at this time were under Roman occupation at the time that the apostles were alive and the disciples were following Jesus. And the Jews actually came to Jesus at one point and they asked Him, for example, whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Do you remember this? They're wrestling through this. And you know what He does. Remember that? Remember what He does? He takes a coin. He picks up a coin and He says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Right. Render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. But during this time, the time of Jesus in the first century, there were revolutionary movements seeking to throw off the bonds of the Roman overlords. They didn't want to live under the authority of the Romans. And in fact, around this time, um, there was a man named Theodos who led 400 men in armed rebellion against the Roman authorities before he and those who followed him were killed. You can actually read about this account in Acts chapter 5, verses 36 and 37. I'm just trying to tell you, like, there was a, a, a picture being painted in the New Testament for us to understand this historical context. Add to that this idea that the Roman emperor was free to take the life of anyone at any time for any reason. A little bit different than today. Think about what they had already had to process as followers of Jesus Christ. They were very familiar with Herod the Great. Do you remember at the early chapters of the Gospels what Herod the Great did? Herod the Great was responsible for declaring that they ought to slaughter all of the baby boys under the age of two years old. And then only three centuries later, Herod's son, Herod Antipas, he took the head of John the Baptist to please his niece at a, at a dinner party. And, and add to this that the Roman government enacted unjust laws such as the expulsion of Jews from Rome. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. This is actually the context in which the Apostle Paul is writing. And by the way, this type of law, it likely caused suffering for many Christians because the Roman authorities failed to distinguish between Jews and Christians. The Roman authorities actually believed the Christians were simply a sect of Judaism. One commentator says this, without question, the value of life in the Roman Empire changed like the weather. Peaceful conditions on one day could give rise to the black clouds of persecution and death on the next. And this is just a taste, by the way, of the kind of government the early church lived under. That's to say, nothing of the emperor Caligula and Nero, who Paul is under at the time he writes this, and same with the apostle Peter, which makes Paul's words that we've already read so stunning and shocking, doesn't it? Doesn't the the context, the historical context, all of a sudden cause these words to kind of just rattle you a little bit? Can you feel the tension that it now produces? Massive tension here. And again, Jesus acknowledges this tension when He holds up the coin, and He says, whose image is on the coin? Give, you know, give or render to Caesar what is Caesar's? Give or render to God what is God's? He understands there's a tension between living as a part of God's kingdom and living still with one foot in the kingdom of this world. He knows there's a tension, there's a wrestling match that's taking place. It's possible that the reason... Well, Paul and Peter have to write these kind of words is because the Christian was inclined, you know, much like the Jews who, who stood at the crucifixion of Jesus and declared, we have no Lord but Caesar, it's possible that many of the Christians were simply saying, we have no Lord but Jesus. And you see, the dilemma that we face or the tension that we face is that at times these two kingdoms, they're going to be in conflict. There's no doubt about that. But it is the fact that we are citizens of heaven that allows us actually to be the best citizens on earth. And that seems to be what 
Paul is interested in here. So what does that look like? That's what we're going to unpack. First, I want to show you this, God's plan, our submission. It's hard to get around the command in this passage. He begins in verse 13, let every person be subject. There's the command right there, be subject. It's in the imperative form. It is an absolute command. Be subject to the governing authorities, he says. Verse 5, he comes back around and he simply reiterates this command in a kind of a summary verse. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection. Now, I just want to reemphasize this, that what Paul is doing in this section of the book of Romans in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, is he's emphasizing that the gospel of God's righteousness touches every single area of our lives. No area of your life is allowed to be untouched by the gospel if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Every corner. And what's fascinating is that he's shifted from all of the imperatives of chapter 1 through 12, and 1 through 11, excuse me, and in chapter 12, get this, he's already given us in chapter 12 40 separate commands. He's just like, watch this. If you believe the gospel, watch this. It ought to change how you live. Command after command after command after command after command after command. And he's going to add a series of commands in chapter 13 and 14 and 15. And you say, well, why is he doing this? His concern is about seeing grace in action in our lives. He wants us to see that our faith comes along with works. You cannot say you're a Christian if you are not going to live like a Christian. And this command is is so simple, it's so clear, isn't it? Be subject, submit to governing authorities. The word submit here is actually closely related to the call to obey. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He actually links these two ideas together. It'll be on the screen there. Titus 3, 1 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. The idea has to do with ordering and structuring ourselves under the proper hierarchy. And here's what you need to see, that allegiance to God does not negate responsibility to secular authority. In fact, when done properly, our submission to secular authority displays our allegiance to God. That's what he's doing here for us. He's trying to help us make this connection. He's saying, you're part of this new humanity in Christ. And now he says, I want to make sure the gospel has legs in your life. This, by the way, is Peter's concern. In a a very similar passage, listen to what Peter says. I'll put it on the screen as well. But This is a a passage that you should just jot down anyways and look at. Listen to what he, he says. This is Peter writing under Nero as well. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Sounds exactly like Paul. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, obviously, and and again, here's the qualification, okay? Obviously, this does not mean absolute submission and unquestioned obedience. This is not what Paul is saying. And I don't know anybody, by the way, who actually believes that. Nobody believes that, that, that you should simply do every single thing the government requires you to do. There are legitimate reasons um, to not obey, to not submit to the government. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, so hang on. And, and by the way, we're not going to hit every little qualification for that. We can't deal with all of that. There are times when civil disobedience, though, is not only appropriate, it is required to be faithful to Jesus. But I think what Paul is suggesting here in this passage is that those times are actually few and far between. They're not the norm for the believer. It's very rare. In fact, Peter Peter doesn't even go there, don't you? This again, isn't this what's so frustrating about this passage? You're like, but but, but Paul, Paul, neither does Peter. Paul, tell us, tell us when we don't have to submit. Don't we just we want Paul to say that? Like, Paul, just give us, give us some loopholes here. 
Help us think through this a little bit. He, he doesn't even go there. Why? I, I, don't know, I don't know all the reasons why. Here's one of the reasons why I think, though, he doesn't even go there. Because he knows, listen, he knows that the issue in the human heart is not the ability to submit. Like, that is not our, that's not our default position, that we're good at submitting. Our default sub, uh, position is that we are good at rebelling, isn't it? Like, that's just the reality. All, all of you who have kids, you know this. You know the struggle you have in your home isn't, man, my kids submit to me too much, too easily. They just, every time I say something, they just obey right away, and they're so happy about it. I'm so frustrated by that. It's not the issue. The issue is this. We always are struggling with the fact that we say something, and we're the rightful authority, and, right, and, the, and the, the frustration for the parent is this, you know, my kid's not submitting, they're not obeying, and I'm trying to figure out how we get them on that page. You say, why is that the struggle? Because that is embedded in the human DNA, human fallen DNA. Listen, the first sin was a failure to submit to the authority of God. It was rebellion against God's rightful authority and rule. That's what the first sin is. And by the way, that's what all sin is. All sin is saying, God, I don't want to submit to you. I don't want to bow the knee to you. All sin is saying, I'm a rebel without a cause, at least a good cause. This is what it means to be part of fallen humanity. That's why, by the way, coming to Christ, do you realize coming to Christ is not just about saying a prayer? It's not just about paying lip service to God. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when, when a sinner comes face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what happens. The sinner recognizes, I am rebellious against God. That's actually what, what is awakened in the heart of a sinner. They realize they have sinned against God, they've rebelled against His authority, and they acknowledge in that moment, I have lived as my own authority, I have disregarded your good and right authority and rule over my life, and that's why the believer, listen, they look to the cross of Jesus Christ and they realize they can be forgiven for that rebellion, but here's what happens. In the forgiveness, there is a new submission to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. Isn't there, Christians? This is the defining feature of the Christian life. We say, I will no longer try to rule myself. I will no longer live in rebellion against God. I will submit every corner, every area, every moment of my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now listen, that doesn't happen perfectly, does it? And in fact, it becomes a daily battle in the Christian life. But we are called to a life of submission. This is just the reality a life lived in joyful obedience to God. I want you to see this, secondly, God's purposes. And I'll sum it up like this, our good. He goes on in verses 2, or 1, sorry, B through 5, and he says this. He says, for there is no authority. Here's the reasons, okay? He's going to give us two reasons and some of the consequences of not submitting. Uh, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for, listen here, here it is, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. These are stunning verses. And here's what we see. What do you mean for our good? Well, I want to give you just two thoughts. Here's the first one. Governing authorities have been instituted by God. That's the reason why he says we are to submit to them. They've been instituted by God. They have an origin that is traced back to God Himself and God's authority. It's a part of what theologians call God's common grace for the world. That God has actually, in His kindness, not just left the world completely to Himself. He allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He still cares for His creation in a, in a general sense, in a common good sort of way. And one of the common graces that God gives to humanity is government. I know it's hard to believe that sometimes. It's kind of like marriage. The institution of government is, is like marriage. It is designed by God, it is given by God, and it's given for the good of humanity. That doesn't mean every marriage is perfect. 
just like not every institution or governing institution is perfect, but we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God has given to humanity the ability to rule, and the idea here is that it's the ability to affect law and order that in some way displays the law and order of God Himself. I want you to see this. This is helpful. He does not endorse a form of government. He endorses the concept of government, okay? So, you're like, well, what's the best form of government? Honestly, I kind of line up with Winston Churchill on this. He said that democracy is the worst form of government except all the other ones. I think there's some truth to that, but I'm not going to die on that hill. I'll tell you this. When Jesus returns, He's not setting up a democracy. And I know the questions you have about it. They're like, what about bad governments? And again, this is where we're like, Paul, why didn't you talk about this? What about totalitarian governments? What about tyrannical governments? Let me just remind you, Paul was not living under a democracy. He was living under an authoritarian regime. He writes to people who are living under a totalitarian regime, a dictator, in many ways, a brutal dictator. And consider this, his society knows nothing of inalienable rights or religious freedom. I think it's fair to say that all governing authorities are bound to be sinful, and yet we are still called to submit to them because God, here's why, because God has instituted them. One commentator says this, since Paul commanded submission in an age when many emperors dared to claim deity, think about that for a moment, they actually claimed to be gods, he says we should submit to governors who make decisions that we consider mistaken. (laughs) It's a little bit of perspective there. Their godliness or ungodliness is not the determining factor here. And this message, it has its roots in the exile. When the prophets of Israel, the exile, when the people of God for their sin were dragged out of their land and they were, they were brought into a tyrannical, authoritarian, corrupt governing system. They were brought into Babylon under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. And even in that context, we read that the prophets instructed Israel to respect the governing authorities, even to pray for their welfare. That's Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And by the way, I find this very freeing in some regards, because as frustrated as as I can get with government, here's one of the things that I see in this, because God is sovereign, because God has instituted it. Listen, I don't have to comment on, I don't have to agree with, I don't have to respond to every decision the government makes. I can do everything Paul has commanded here without feeling the necessity to do all of that. That does not mean I approve of or endorse everything the government does. It just means that I'm free to not have to respond to everything. Can I respond to things? Absolutely, as long as you do so the right way. Should you? Maybe in certain circumstances you should. But the thing that Paul points to here is that the, the origins of government are from God. Again, this is not an absolute authority. It's a delegated authority, which means this, that, that even the, the rulers of this world who are serving, he says here, as God's servants, whether unwittingly or wittingly, they will ultimately answer to the final authority of God Himself. But they have an authority that is based on God's natural or eternal law, and an authority that is based on His sovereignty. That's where it comes from. Now, again, we understand authority can be and often is abused. We see that in governments. We see that in marriages. We see that in churches. Any place where there is authority, we are going to find abuses. Just because God ordains government and gives them authority, consider this, it does not mean He approves of every decision, every action, or even every government. Keep in mind that it is also possible that an unjust or corrupt political system, I think some of us haven't thought enough about this, an unjust or corrupt political system may actually be God's punishment on people. Just like He lets them go, Romans 1, 24 says, He lets them go in their sin. He gives them over to their sin. One U.S. senator 
Jim Talent, he said this, he said, the Lord gives democracies the governments they deserve. If we wish to elect corrupt leaders, he lets us so that we get the leaders we deserve, not the leaders we need. In a little slip of the tongue last week, the Vice President of the United States said, the people voted and the people got what they asked for. <laughs> There's truth to that. Don't miss God's sovereignty. That's what Paul is saying. Don't miss God's sovereignty here. Some of us are so fearful about, I mean, I just, I can't imagine. I was talking to Pastor Joseph this past, past couple of days. He's, he's got 15 women with young children in his home who are streaming through, trying to get to safety somewhere. They're feeding people because they've been living under a, a brutal regime and their lives are at stake. I mean, I just, I can't imagine the situation. And of course, we would, we would believe that what's taking place is evil and wicked, and, and to flee from that is right and, and good. But listen here, here's what's so helpful for our hearts. Don't miss God's sovereignty over all the kingdoms of the world. In Proverbs 4, in the, in the personification of wisdom, Proverbs 8, excuse me, here's what God says, by me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Daniel says this, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. The Lord announced that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar all of the, your countries that you possess. And keep in mind that Jesus Christ looked Pilate in the eyes and told him that he would have no authority over him at all unless it had been given to him from his Father above. Second, notice this, governing authorities fulfill a particular function of God or for God. And here he goes in to describe this good that God has given to humanity. Now, I think what Paul is doing here is actually reaching back to Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, post-flood, we have, in some sense, the institution of government in a broken, fallen world, and the, the law that's given there is really a life for a life. And that's really helpful because I think all of government is, is, in some sense, in a fallen world predicated upon this principle of life for a life. In other words, that the primary goal of government is to preserve human life, to protect human life. In the United States, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Think about this. You cannot have uh, happiness if you have no liberty, and you cannot have liberty if you have no life. One of these things comes before all the others. And so all government is designed to do in effect. Now, the way this is fleshed out can look a lot different, but it is in effect attempting to establish one common good for humanity, the protection and preser preservation of human life. Leaders are therefore supposed to punish evil and reward the good. That's how they protect and preserve human life. They're supposed to promote a just society. This is why they're called servants of God. This is fascinating. He uses this term. It's almost a reverential term. The government is, is, a, is a servant of God, a minister of God serving humanity. And again, whether they realize it or not, this is the role that God has given to them. And Peter agrees with this assessment of Paul, right? He says the governor should punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Even a flawed government may do good by defending borders, for example, building roads and promoting public order. For that reason, he tells us, we subject ourselves to the governing authorities because it is in our best interest. Again, we may not always agree with the rules they come up with. I talked to two separate people in the past month who both told me a similar story. Both of them were Americans, so that's maybe a preface that's important. But they, they talked to me, both of them, about the, the, the time in history when uh, the seatbelt law was instituted in the United States. Some of us are way too young to even know that there was a time where it was legal to not wear a seatbelt. You didn't have to wear a seatbelt. Some of you grew up like that, and you're like, yeah, those, those are the days. But, but the, 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 in both cases, they reiterated that their parents were outraged. I'm not kidding. Like fuming, mad, picketing, protesting, outraged. How dare the government trample on my religious freedoms? My, my one good friend told me this, that his mother-in-law, again in the United States, she got four tickets before she decided to buckle up her seatbelt because she didn't want to give the government any more of her money. 
But you're like, like, look, we don't always agree with the laws, but, but can, we, can we agree on this? That law and order is far better than anarchy and chaos. That's part of the point here. And, and he's stating the ideal here. He's not naive, okay? Paul is not naive. One author says this, a few theologians claim that we offer respect only, listen, you need to hear this, only to governors who fulfill their God-given duties, but Paul, who knew the flaws of Roman governors, gives no hint of that in Romans 13, 1 through 7. He goes on to say, even corrupt, harsh, and feckless governors deserve respect if only because they prevent anarchy. It's a terror to evil. That's what he says here. This is the negative side. They're supposed to promote good and the flourishing of human society and to protect people, protect people's property, protect people's lives. But you see the consequences that are embedded here. They are supposed to be a terror to evil. And by the way, it's, it's supposed to produce fear in us. If, if we don't respect the governing authority, if we don't submit to the governing authorities, then we, sh- we should not be surprised when we suffer the consequences for that. When, when we're unwilling to follow the laws and they respond to us the way the law calls them to, God uses governments to restrain evil in society so that we can live peaceable and quiet lives as part of what He wants us to understand. I mean, I want you to think about this. What happens when you remove the police? Some of you may be police officers in here. It's been a hard couple of years for police officers, especially in the United States. And, and I'll tell you this, without commenting all the, the cultural chaos, what I do know is this, everywhere in the United States in particular, they attempted to defund the police. You know what happened? Sin reigns. Chaos ensues. Destruction, damage, death goes up. Why? Because you, re- you remove, listen, some of these things that are intended to restrain the sinfulness of humanity, and everybody then does what is right in their own eyes. Everyone does what is best for themselves. There's no community project any longer. It's an individual self-serving project. Those who do bad should fear evil. The government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. They bear the sword. That's such an important uh, image in our minds. The sword is a symbol of authority and the God-given, uh, of the God-given partial, listen, partial, provisional, relative manifestation of His wrath against evil. Let me say that again. The sword that the, the state bears, the government bears, is the God-given partial, provisional, relative manifestation of His wrath against evil. Now, it's important to see how this connects to the previous passage. He says that in the end of verse 4, for He, the state, is the, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Last, uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 12, remember what we were told we weren't allowed to do. We were not allowed to take personal vengeance. In fact, we were told to avoid that at all costs. It's forbidden for believers. We were, leave it to, we were called to leave it to the wrath of God. The, the Lord is the one who avenges. And so what you see Paul doing here is connecting the wrath of God and the vengeance of God to actually the role of government. He says, well, we're not called to take personal revenge. He says, God has provided a system of law and order for you to make appeals and seek justice. They're to carry out vengeance and justice on your behalf. That is not, you're not called to be a vigilante. You're not called to take matters into your own hands. You're supposed to go through the right channels. And by the way, if the government doesn't come through and doesn't do what they're supposed to do, listen, in the end, on the final day, God will judge all people and all situations appropriately. And then he wraps it up in verse 5. Look at this again. Therefore, based on all of these reasons, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Listen, those are two great motivations. You don't want God's wrath that comes to the government. But also, this is interesting, but for conscience' sake, what does that mean? He's, here's what he's saying. Because you know it's right. You know it's right. You know that God has established the state and that He is mediating His rule through the government. 
And so he says, listen, live within the system and do not rebel against the rulers on non-essential matters. And, and by the way, you want to know what the result of this is? You wonder why Paul is saying this? Because in this way, you can let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father is in heaven. You provide a more conducive atmosphere for the gospel to spread and for Christ to be displayed. Third, look at this, God's principles which are our worship. And he gives us uh, four of them here. He gives us four examples quickly of what this looks like in verses 6 and 7. For because of this, notice how he links it back, you also pay taxes. Why? For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Well, what thing? The, the good of society. That's their, that's their role. That's what they're, they're seeking to do. So here's what he says. Four things. Um, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Why? Why pay taxes? I know, I know. I hate this too. But why? The simple answer is this, because they're doing a job. They need to get paid. They're doing a job on behalf of God. Whether we feel like it's merited is beside the point, and let's be frank, oftentimes we don't think it's merited. And he says this, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Revenue here, I think, is just simply customs or duties, expenditures that go to security, infrastructure, and the public good. They contribute to societal good, and so we, we pay those customs willingly as a means of displaying our subjection. That's what he's saying. Notice what he says next. Two terms that are closely linked together, respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. I think respect is speaking more to our attitude towards the laws, and honor speaks more of our attitude towards the persons. There's an important distinction there. Listen, we may criticize at times, and we are allowed to. We at times may call it like it is, but we are always called to do it respectfully and honorably. Sadly, um, in, in maybe the last two years, we have been more inclined to mock and make fun of those in office instead of praying for them. And I acknowledge this has been hard for me. But the fact that angry, hate-filled rhetoric is commonplace in our culture does not mean it's acceptable for a Christian. In fact, this is one of the ways that we will stand out in this culture. Not necessarily by agreeing with our government, but even in critiquing and disagreeing, still demonstrating an honor and respect for those who have been instituted by God for our good. And you need to see this. We demonstrate submission and therefore worship by adhering to these principles. Remember, what Paul is doing is he's linking all this back to a life of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is all about your life of worship. Everything he calls us to do, therefore, is an opportunity to worship God. And, and if that's the case, listen, that means that your attitude is supposed to actually be in the right place when you're doing these things, right? When you pay your taxes. If you do so with a spirit of grumbling and complaining, you're not worshiping God. If a police officer pulls you over and you want to attack them for doing their job, you are not worshiping God in that moment. This is double the sin. That means, listen, as hard, this is hard for us to hear, but you, we need to hear this. Listen, stopping at stop signs is an act of worship. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. Not parking in a handicapped spot unless you have a permit is an act of worship. Abiding by speed limits or at least the enforced limits. There's an ethical debate here, okay? Adhering to admission tests, honoring our immigration laws, making sure we have adequate insurance on our homes and vehicles, having a fishing boating license, abiding by facility capacity limits. These are all part of maintaining law and order, and they're actually a part of God's common grace to us. Even when it's inconvenient or not in our personal interest to do so. So next time you see those lights flashing in your rearview mirror, and the officer comes up to your car, and you know the question he's going to ask you, do you know what you did wrong? You already know exactly what you did wrong, by the way. 
You need to look at that police officer in the eye and say, thank you for maintaining law and order and helping me to worship God. (laughs) This is really important. When you pay taxes and revenue, you're approving the function of the office, not the character of those in the office. We should be respectful as Christians. We should be the best, listen, as Christians, we should be the best spouses. We should be the best workers, the best bosses, the best neighbors, the best friends, and yes, the best citizens this nation has ever seen. Why? All in response to the mercies of God as we live our lives as an act of worship unto Him. This is the message of Romans 13, 1 through 7. And I'll confess, it's not always easy to figure out how this is best done. It's not. But we need to maintain this, and I'll land the plane here, so hang in there. This will be quick. The priority are Christ-likeness. You see, the call of the Christian is to die to self in the interest of Christ-likeness. And, and this is what we've been doing throughout the week. I feel like every, every week we've gone through Romans 12, has just been like, do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to be more like Christ? And do you realize that everything the Apostle Paul is calling us to do is hard? It's not easy. It doesn't come natural. It just doesn't. But the call, the call, listen, the call of Paul to our hearts, the call of the Spirit of God to our hearts is, do you want to be like Jesus? So, so let's just quickly deal with the elephant in the room, okay? Are there occasions when subjection to the governing authorities might be sinful? Or to frame it another way, are there times where it is appropriate to not submit, to not obey the government? The, the answer is obviously Yes. And the basic principle that people have used for years, which is so helpful, is this. When the government… Here's when you're allowed to disobey and to not submit, okay? When the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. And again, admittedly, it's not always easy to figure out what fits into those categories. They're not always nice and neat categories. Some of them require a little bit of thinking. And by the way, some Christians disagree on some of things that fit into these categories, and that's okay. It's, it's perfectly okay. But the basic principle here is, is that the overarching priority is that Jesus is Lord. Caesar claimed to be God in the first century, but the Scriptures make it clear that He was not. We know that. And we see, by the way, this principle of obeying God above the government all throughout the Scriptures. But I I want you to see this. Every time we see it in Scripture, it seems to be a very clear incidence of them being commanded or called to completely disobey something that was obviously and overtly clear in the Scriptures, okay? And if you can find something else that's a little more ambiguous and show it to me, I'd be happy to look at it. But as, as I've searched the Scriptures, I promise you, every instance of civil disobedience tends to be overt, clear calls to disobey the clear commands of God. The Hebrew midwives, they were commended. Why? Because when Pharaoh came alongside them and said, listen, you need to murder all of these young male babies as soon as they they come out, then you've got to kill them all. What do they do? They didn't do it. Why? Because God is above the authorities of the world. And what God says is murder is sin and wrong. We will not obey. Daniel, who had a place of high position in Nebuchadnezzar's government in Babylon itself, he could influence the king. By the way, that's that's a good thing to be able to influence the government. That's all positive and good. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But, But don't miss this. When he was told he had to disobey the clear command of God, he refused and was willing to suffer the consequences too. He was willing to submit to the consequences of even being thrown into a lion's den. Perhaps the one that we are most familiar with, Acts chapter 5, when the apostles are told to stop preaching the gospel, their declaration was, we must obey God rather than man. And by the way, listen, we, when that is the case, like we stand on the authority of God's Word and we cheerfully, listen church, we cheerfully submit to the consequences of choosing Christ over all of the riches of this world. Amen? We take whatever comes our way. Like the the apostles and the the disciples, we praise God because we might be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. 
And I understand, listen, in our country, we're given a voice, freedom to affect change by communicating with and reasoning with our governing authorities. We're given opportunities to appeal to magistrates, to, to lesser authorities, to affect change. We're given the privilege of voting and, and seeking to make change that way. We're given the ability to speak up against injustice and be a voice for the voiceless. And we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to use it appropriately, but we ought never to put our hope in that. Paul's greatest priority in this text, listen, and and in all of the book of Romans is our Christ-likeness. We cannot miss that. Do not let your views on government and the little disagreements you have with other believers or other people cause you to miss the whole point of what Paul is saying. This is all about your Christ-likeness and mine. One person, I spoke to a a pastor and a a professor this week, and he, he gave me this. This is so helpful. Listen to this, okay? This is a quote that I've kind of modified. He says this, we're getting close to the end. Hang on there, okay? Paul is more concerned about our personal humility than our civil liberty. More concerned about our unmortified sins than our inalienable rights. That is the emphasis and concern of Scripture. Human pride, he says, is a far greater threat than political injustice. He sees the transforming effects of the gospel as far more significant than passing legislation. He sees Christ ruling by His Word and Spirit as far more powerful than any earthly leader or ruler or party. His point is not to tell us how to vote. It's not to tell us how to take back our country. It isn't about how to defend our constitution or fight for our individual rights. His point is to tell us how deeply the gospel should transform us. It is to tell us what kind of people we should look like, what it means to worship God in response to His mercies, and how that applies to every corner of your life, even how you submit to the governing authorities. Can you hear? Can you hear Jesus? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Can you hear it? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But, but I wonder, can you, can you hear Jesus? Render to God what is God's. You, like that coin, are stamped with the very image of God. And whether you're a believer here today or an unbeliever, it it matters not. You are stamped by the image of God. You are made in the very image of God. And He created you to know Him, to submit and surrender your life to Him. So can you hear the words of Jesus to your heart and mine today? Render to God's what is God's. You are made to live in full submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is a day coming when our Lord Jesus will return. And listen, while while He suffered as a servant at the hands of a corrupt, unjust government, and He bore the brunt of that injustice so that we could be set free from our sins, there is a day coming when the government will be upon His shoulders. He will rule and reign with perfect righteousness and justice. From sea to sea, His glory will reign. Have you submitted to King Jesus is perhaps the better question this afternoon. Are you living in relation to the kings and kingdoms of this world to show that you are actually part of a kingdom that is not of this world? Are you living in a way that all will see that Jesus is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords? We render to Him our lives as a living sacrifice, not conformed to this world, but by being transformed by the renewal of our minds, so that in and through it all, we might live for Him and for His glory. Let's pray.